0: This morning, turn to the book of First Thessalonians in chapter 5. According to my calculations, which, which often go wrong and have to be re- recalculated, but it, the, my current plan is that this is the second to last. This is the penultimate sermon in First Thessalonians. Uh, we'll wrap it up uh, in one more sermon, Lord willing. Thessalonians chapter 5, and uh, I'm reading in verse 12. And I'm only going to read through verse 15, 12 to 15. Let me just say one word before I read it. This is a sermon. I'm about to preach to you a sermon about unity, about our unity as a church. And I just want to make it clear, since sometimes uh, people wonder if there's a subtext or a hidden text behind the words I'm saying. There's not. And this is not directed at any person, any individual. I didn't have anybody in mind. I didn't have names in mind when I wrote this sermon. This is not targeting anybody at all. I am just simply speaking, generally, about our unity here at Ebenezer. And the other thing I want to say, just to be clear, is that as I make these points about our unity from the book of Thessalonians, from the Bible, I just want to recognize, I, I myself have not walked through the challenges that our church have, has faced perfectly. And I'm, and I'm well aware of that. And I, and I, I just want to make sure I don't, I don't convey the impression that somehow I think that I, I have handled things masterfully. I haven't. And I don't want to be a hypocrite and pretend that I have. We're all learning as we go, all of us. And we need to extend patience and grace towards one another as we do that. Okay, that said, let's read the text and then I'll pray. 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard, in love, because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together and ask for his help. Holy Father, thank you for these words that you have inspired. They are God-breathed. We believe that every word of the Bible is is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for correction, for rebuking, for training in righteousness. And so, Lord, have your way with us this morning. With us collectively as a church, we invite you and ask you, you are the potter, put your hands on us and shape us. We want to bear your fingerprints. We want to look like you have called and created and redeemed us to look. And that will take some shaping. And so we invite you to do that now. Amen. All right, well, for this sermon, I am focusing on the command that falls right in the middle of the paragraph that I read. Six words, live at peace with each other. Live at peace with each other. That is a command from Paul to the Thessalonians, which means that that is a command from God to us, the Ebenezerites. Live at peace with each other. All right, what does that mean? And how can we obey that? Live at peace with each other. Before we turn our attention to some of the challenges to our peace, I want to remember, I want for us to collectively remember that there are lots of wonderful things happening at Ebenezer right now. Lots. This past Thursday, we had a gathering with a number of ministry leaders, and it was so encouraging to hear about some of the wonderful things happening at Ebenezer right now. We just cleared space and gave people time to share, and I at the time I said I wish everybody from church could have heard this cuz it was so encouraging. As as you already heard next week we're going to be hosting a refugee family that we've supported for a potluck. I'm sure you know that our youth is the, the youth ministry is just thriving. Loads of young people are participating on Sunday evenings in youth, the women's ministry is at work and has an event coming up. Gems has about 50 girls attending on their Wednesdays. Cadets is thriving. Friendship continues to be a source of blessing on so many people, friends and mentors and volunteers. Our worship teams serve so faithfully and sacrificially each week. Our ushers always greet us with a smile. Sunday school has enough volunteers to care for all those eager children every week. We are blessed and so so many ways. So many good, God-glorifying, edifying things are happening here every week, and for that there is much cause to give thanks. But along with the abundant blessings, we also have some challenges. Now that's always going to be the case in the church, always. This side of heaven In glory, we we won't have these challenges. But this side of heaven, we do, and that is just the reality. Paul wouldn't have had to exhort the Thessalonians to live at peace with each other unless sometimes they struggled with that, right? You don't have to give commands to people for something they always do. So the fact that Paul felt the need to tell them to live at peace with each other indicates that sometimes they didn't. And we're no better and no worse, than they were and we need the same instruction the same exhortation but it takes real wisdom it's one thing to say all right live at peace with each other it takes real wisdom to know how to pursue relational peace doesn't it it takes real wisdom to know when is the time to avoid conflict and when is the time to wade into it and address it it's hard to know Sometimes when you fixate on problems, you just make them bigger. You constantly talk about problems. You make it feel like that's all we have is problems. And sometimes you just need to move on and focus on positive things. But on the other hand, if you totally ignore the problems and pretend like they're not there, well, then they can grow. Because the fact is time doesn't heal all pain and conflict. And it takes wisdom to know when to speak and when to be quiet. It's common knowledge. I think everyone that can hear my voice right now knows that there have been two major challenges in addition to a number of smaller challenges that all churches in our denomination have experienced over the past few years. We know this, right? The one is how our denomination is wrestling with the issue of the Bible and human sexuality. What does faithfulness look like? How does it get lived out when members of the same church who read the same Bible and sign the same statements of faith have different and strongly held opinions about the subject. How does that get worked out? It's a challenge. The other issue that churches faced, as you know, was COVID. And again, the question was, what does faithfulness look like for our church during that time? And again, just like every other church, we encounter different and strongly held opinions about that within our church family. Now, I have no doubt whatsoever in my mind that we all, without exception, want to obey verse 13 that says, live at peace with each other. We do. I know we do. And yet, for various reasons, that has at times been hard to achieve. And now, many congregations are finding that they're having a hard time getting back to the way things were. I hear that phrase a lot, not not just here at Ebenezer, but as I interact with other pastors and other members of other churches, I want to get back to the way things were. But some people are starting to wonder if perhaps the way things were weren't quite as healthy as they looked. And perhaps some of the challenges that we faced simply brought challenges to the surface that were there all along, actually, but just lying dormant. In which case it's a blessing, it really is, a blessing that these challenges have been revealed because now they can be addressed. That's a good thing. That means that we're growing and maturing. right? And if you've ever been a kid or had kids, which is all of us, you know that the process of growing and maturing can be painful sometimes, right? Like physically, right? You have a growth spurt and your your, your muscles ache. Your body aches. It's because you're growing. Uh, Emotionally, becoming a mature person usually involves pain along the way. Growth, usually maturing, usually entails pain. But that's not bad pain. It's good pain. It means you're moving in the right direction. It means you're growing and maturing. To that end, I want to share something with you that I wrote in my journal as I was processing what it was like to go through COVID as a church and to know for a fact that the church loves each other. There's real deep commitment and love for one another within the church, but also knowing that in that, in that very same church where the people love each other, there are different perspectives on important issues. And so here's what I wrote. Prior to the pandemic, I made a miscalculation about Christian community. It's not that I undervalued it. I understood that community is one of the greatest gifts that God gives to us, and I often said that in sermons and in private conversations. But I think the miscalculation I made was that I overestimated its durability. I thought Christian community was like a diamond, beautiful and nearly unbreakable. I suppose that sounds naive. Of course, I knew that church splits happen, but I have never experienced one, and I assumed that it took an awful lot of sin, piled upon sin, in order to cause a split. Turns out, it doesn't. The beauty of Christian community isn't quite like a diamond. After all, it's actually more like a crystal vase. Now, just to clarify, I understand that the universal church is the very definition of durable. Nothing will be allowed to impede the universal church's mission, right? Not even the gates of hell. Jesus said that, right? I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church, universal, is durable. It's not going anywhere, okay? But what I'm talking about When I talk about the beauty and the fragility of the church, I'm referring to individual local communities of Christians, local churches. Vases are beautiful and valuable, but they're also fragile. And as such, they need to be treasured and handled with care because they can be dropped or bumped or knocked over or chipped or broken. They can even be shattered by the shrill note of a loud and gifted vocalist. It's good to have convictions. The Bible itself is full of strong convictions. It's good to feel strongly about things and it's good to act on those convictions with integrity. That's part of what it means to be fully alive and fully following Jesus Christ. But it isn't good when we hold our convictions in a way that's relationally careless or unkind. That type of insensitivity chips and damages the vase of Christian community. The church is not a museum piece. The church is not meant to be placed behind glass and looked at but never touched. No, the church is meant to be handled, but it must be handled with care. And that is why Paul tells the church to live at peace with each other. To the extent that we have failed to do that at Ebenezer, we have picked up a few chips and a few hairline fractures along the way. But thankfully, the cracked church is not entirely like Humpty Dumpty. It is true that all the king's horses and all the king's men cannot repair the damage. But there is a certain king who can. And I believe by faith that he is and he will continue to do so. All right, that's the end of my journal entry. Now back to real time. Uh, We all know, we all agree that people want peace, right? We all want peace. That's not a question. That is a fact. The question is, having gone through some challenging times, how can we live at peace with each other like this verse tells us to. And thankfully, there's some answers right there in that paragraph, right there in the context surrounding that command to live at peace. The first um, principle has to do with the interactions between the congregation and the leadership of the church. That's the first thing Paul raises, is how are the leaders and the congregation interacting with each other in order to promote peace. Peace. And then the second one focuses on individual members of the congregation interacting with one another. How can they do so in a way that promotes peace? So we'll just talk about those two categories and then then we'll be done. So first, instructions for the interactions between the congregation and the leadership of the church. How should we interact with our leaders? Verse 12 refers to those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Those are leaders within the church. In our church, the members of our council fit that description. These are people who willingly, joyfully, and sacrificially give their time to serve the church by providing pastoral care and prayer and ministry oversight and decision-making. These are individuals who are, without exception, every single one of them, motivated by love for the church and a desire to see God's people thrive. What should you do if the men and women of council make a decision that you think will not result in the thriving of the church? Maybe you think that these group of men and women have made a decision that might even be harmful to the church. What then? What do you do then? Well, this passage says... That we are supposed to hold those men and women in the highest regard and be filled with love and respect towards them. That posture, according to this passage, will promote peace in the entire church. The way that we interact with and think about and talk about the leaders has an impact on the entire peace of the church. Now, does that mean that we're all supposed to sit back, all those who are not part of council, just sit back and quietly submit? If you think counsel is pursuing an unwise course of action, no, definitely not. No. If you love and respect someone, you are willing to confront them if you think they're doing wrong. That's part of the package of love and respect. But you'll do it in a way that's loving and respectful. That that means that when we speak about counsel, we do it in a way that's loving and respectful. Always even if we disagree with something they've said or done. And let me say this as bluntly as possible. If you are making unloving or disrespectful comments to others about counsel, then you're actively working to undermine the peace and the unity of this church. And according to Jesus, that puts you in the wolf category, not the sheep category. The Christ-honoring approach is to address counsel directly with our words and to do so with a tone of love and respect. And of course, it doesn't go without saying. It needs to be said, so I'm going to say it. Of course, the loving and respectful dialogue needs to run both ways, both directions, from congregation to counsel and from counsel to congregation. Counsel also needs to engage the church in a way that's loving and respectful. God's design for the church is that there are leaders and that there is a loving and respectful two-way dialogue and partnership and mutual affection between leaders and congregation. Not hostility, but love and respect. Okay. That's what Paul has to say about the way the church is to interact with the leaders. And if we do that right, lovingly and respectfully, that will promote peace in our congregation. The second principle gives us general guidelines with uh, how to interact with one another, individual members of the congregation. It says, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. And be patient with everyone. Four imperatives there. I tried to emphasize them. Four verbs that are commands. Warn, encourage, help, and be patient. Warn the idle and disruptive. Warn them. In life, there is work to be done. I trust that you know this, right? That is, a, that is an unchanging fact. It doesn't matter where you live, what time period you live. There is work to be done in life. In church, also, there is work to be done. Always. There is no end to the work of ministry to be done within the church and, and in the greater community. And when we focus on our shared labor, when that is what has grabbed our attention, is the work to be done to the glory of God, well, then we experience peace. We experience unity, because we're focused on a common goal. As an extended analogy, I'll carry this uh, through this section. Let me, let me take you on a journey. Come with me, if you will, to an acreage outside of Cincinnati in the early 1980s. That is where my grandparents lived, in an old farmhouse. The house they lived in was built in the 1860s, right after the Civil War. And every summer, a whole mess of grandchildren from various parts of the United States, from Georgia and Arkansas and California and Wisconsin, maybe even a couple from Costa Rica and some from England, we would, we would all descend on this acreage outside of Cincinnati and we would all be dropped off. Our parents would stay for a couple days and leave. There we were with grandma and grandpa. We would sleep on the floors or on the porch or outside in tents, and it was the absolute highlight of the year for most of us. My grandparents had five acres. A large percentage of that land was planted in a massive vegetable garden. I can see it now in my mind. The rules were, We all had to do chores all morning, and then we could all play together in the afternoon. Some of us city kids weren't that used to hard work. (laughs) I don't know if you know this, but the sun is very hot in Cincinnati in August. Some of the grandkids in that garden might be accurately described as idle, disruptive, (laughs) wandering among the rows of carrots, and daydreaming instead of weeding them. And that idle child who shall remain nameless and who has not yet busied himself with work as he wanders around these carrot rows has plenty of time to think about how unfair it is that grandma and grandpa are getting free labor from their grandkids. And that idle kid might even start voicing those concerns and grumping about them to the other grandkids. And then those other grandkids, who were in fact working hard, might see this idle grandkid and hear his grumbling words and decide, you know what, they don't want to weed carrots anymore either. At which point, the first child is not only now idle, but also, to use the language of the passage, is disruptive. What are we to do under these circumstances? Well, Paul identifies this circumstance, the idle and disruptive, and he says what we are to do to them is warn them. Warn them. Warn the idle and disruptive. My grandma was very good at warning me. Jason, if you don't get to work now, then I am going to make you weed carrots this afternoon when everyone else is in the pool. That's a warning a warning that a young nine-year-old boy takes very seriously. And Jason, if you don't learn the value of hard work now while you're nine, then you're going to have a very hard life ahead of you from here on out. And Jason, if you keep talking to your cousin Andy right now, I'm going to send you over to turn the compost pile by yourself. Those are warnings given to me by my, by my grandma, Lois Ella. And those warnings were helpful, not only in teaching a young, lazy boy the value of hard work, but they were also helpful in promoting and preserving the unity of the family, the unity of the cousins that were supposed to be working together. My bad attitude had the potential to undercut the whole blessing and joy of laboring together. And so I needed a warning to help me to see that so that I could change my ways. And this is, I think, the point of why Paul included this instruction. To remind them that they're on the same team. To remind them that there's lots of ministry work for the church to do. There is no end of ministry work for the church to do. And Paul envisions that all members of the congregation, without exception will be pitching in and engaging in that labor in their own way, in a way that makes sense for their gifting and calling and seasons of life, pitching in and engaging in that labor. And that will not only promote the building of God's kingdom, but that will promote our unity. That will ensure our unity when we focus on our shared labor together. So ask yourself now, are you laboring hard? Are you using your gifts to engage in the work of ministry at Ebenezer? I know that for many, many people listening right now, the answer to that question is a definitive yes. Yes, I am. We have so many people investing their time and talents to work to the work of ministry here at Ebenezer. But if your answer is no, then may I ask why not? It's when we labor together that we experience the unity of peace. According to this passage, it's disruptive to be idle when there's work to be done. And if you don't know what to do, if you don't know how to invest yourself, ask around. Because the opportunities abound. Join a worship team, join the greeting ministry, join a small group, be a volunteer with friendship, serve in the nursery, join church life, or start a new ministry that doesn't even exist right now that reaches out into the community or meets some other need that you identify. The point is, we will live at peace with one another, even if we don't agree on some significant theological topics, we will experience peace with one another when we labor together in God's kingdom. Next, Paul says to encourage the disheartened. All right, back to Grandma's garden. There's a young person who's slowly making his way down a long row of carrots in the hot sun, and he just looked at his watch, and he just realized he has two hours to go, and he is disheartened. What can you do? Well, maybe you can go over there and maybe you can start working shoulder to shoulder with him and maybe you could even challenge him. Come on, I bet we can make it to the end of this row in 20 minutes if we work hard together. Maybe you could remind him how good the water in the pool is going to feel that afternoon and it'll feel all the better if you work harder in the morning. And I think what you'll find is that tired and frustrated little boy has gone from disheartened to heartened simply because you came alongside And encouraged him. And worked with him. And again, I think the parallels to life in the church are obvious. People get disheartened as we labor in the field of the Lord. Right? We do. People get discouraged. Or tired. Or bad things happen. Or a loved one gets sick. Or plans don't work out. Life happens and sometimes life is just disheartening. And I think what Paul is saying here is that since we're all on the same team, we're all part of the same family, we're all pulling in the same direction, we should be on the lookout for the disheartened so that we can encourage them. And that is a practice that will promote our peace and our unity as a church. All you have to do is think about the last time you were feeling disheartened and someone was sensitive enough to notice And then took the step of actually doing or saying something to encourage you, you know how good that feels. And then look for ways to be that encourager to others. All right, the third imperative is to help the weak. Help the weak. Here's here's the reality about life on planet Earth some people can't weed their row of carrots as fast as you can. That's a fact. So, rather than finishing your row and then going and sitting in the shade and criticizing those who are slower than you, finish your row and then go find someone who's not done yet and help them. Help the weak. Help the weak. Help those whose capacity is less than yours. Because the truth is, we are all weak in our own ways. There's not like two categories there's the weak and there's the strong. That's not how it works. We're all weak in some ways, and we're all strong in other ways, right? That's how it works. So when I'm, where I'm weak, you might be strong. Where you're weak, someone else might be strong. And that's how God designed it, right? He, he built codependency into the church. That's not, a, that's not a bug. It's a feature. We're made to need each other. And because of that, we have opportunities to help one another. And it's beautiful when we do. And the very act of helping the weak promotes our unity and peace. When we do that, when we're busy helping the weak, we have very little time for being divisive. The final imperative is a plea for patience. Be patient with everyone. Everyone. There's no exceptions to that. Be patient with everyone. I think that's simply an acknowledgement that none of us is going to get this right all the time. None of us. As we seek to live it out in real time, we're going to have to make a commitment to be patient with one another because all of us sometimes need bearing with, need need people to be patient with us. That means that we're going to have to make a commitment to not hold our worst moments against one another, right? We We all have moments that we're not proud of, that we wish had gone a different way, And it's important for us to not hold that against someone else. It means that we're going to have to extend full forgiveness when sincere apologies are offered so that we can move on and not hang on to previous wrongs. It means that when we're confused by the words or actions of another, we will assume the best, not the worst. We will assume their heart was in the right place. And then we'll follow up and respectfully ask for clarification so we can get to the bottom of it. It means that if someone offends us or takes a position on an important topic that we don't agree with, that we won't simply cut them out of our lives and stop talking to them, but we will demonstrate how much we love and value that person by pursuing them and seeking mutual understanding. I don't mean mutual agreement. I don't mean we're all going to agree on every important issue. You know that we won't. But seeking mutual understanding, which is a reasonable goal. Mutual understanding. How many hard feelings and misunderstandings would simply evaporate if we would take the time to patiently understand one another? It's uh, Anita Feldheisen-Slump. She said this, and it always stuck with me when she told me. She said, there are very few misunderstandings that cannot be cleared up with a cup of coffee and a conversation. I think that's right. All right, our passage closes with one final point, and so this is where we'll end with this final point. Um, this is the toughest one. This is the hardest one, so we'll end with this. Paul ends with this. He says, Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Make sure that nobody ever pays back wrong for wrong. Now in that scenario, that assumes that somebody has been wronged, somebody has done wrong. And what Paul is saying is when you find yourself in that situation where you have been wronged and when every part of your body tells you you have a right to lash out or to respond with wrong for wrong and Paul is saying right there, stop. Nobody do that. Nobody do that. Listen, if we just obeyed that instruction, we, we would never have relational problems again. But it is so hard not to push back when you've been pushed, right? Like that, that's true on small levels. That's true on huge levels, right? It's true if you're a sports fan, if you watch football, you, you know what happens, right? The one person starts it, but nobody sees it. The, the, the officials don't see it. They push, but they don't get caught. And what happens almost every time is that the other player can't help himself. He knows he's going to get caught, but he can't help himself. He pushes back. He's been wronged, and he wrongs back. And what happens? He gets the flag because he's the one that the officials saw. And he will say, all I was doing was responding to a wrong that I received. And the officials will say, we don't care because we saw you do that, and there's no excuse for that. It's not okay, even if he did push you, right? But our hearts tell us that's not right, right? That's not just. That's a little silly example. Who cares, right? It's a game. But it happens at a huge scale, tragic scale as well, right? When a group of people comes into your country and does bad things to your citizens, everything in you wants to respond with wrong for wrong, right? And I'm not saying anything right now about the politics of the Middle East or who's right and who's wrong. Don't go there. All I'm saying is that all of us feel that impulse for justice, all of us feel it, right? When you've been wronged, you want it, you want revenge. And what Paul is saying here is, what he's saying is, I get it. I know that you feel that impulse, and I'm telling you, don't give in to it. Don't respond with wrong for wrong. Leo Tolstoy... uh, one of my favorite authors has written a wonderful novella. It's short. It's probably about 100 pages about this very issue. It's called The Forged Coupon. What happens in the book is someone does a wrong, a small wrong, relatively small wrong. They, someone pawns off a counterfeit bill, a forged coupon, right? a, a fake piece of money, uh, to a shopkeeper. And the shopkeeper realizes what's happened after the guy is gone. And the shopkeeper is angry because he's been wronged. he had been taken advantage of. And so he tries to figure out, how am I going to get justice? How am I going to remedy this situation? He really needs the money. He's not going to be able to find the crook who gave it to him, gave him the, the counterfeit money. So he decides, well, the, he only has one option. He's going to pass the pain along to someone else. And so he tricks someone else into taking that counterfeit bill. Well, in the story, that person has then been, the wrong has been now passed on. That person realizes what happens and they in turn do something wrong to someone else. And then the whole book kind of traces out how one relatively small misdeed, one small wrong can get passed along from person to person and it can get amplified along the way. And the story, one bad turn leads to another all the way until by the end of the book, that, that small little crooked act of using fake money results in an innocent woman being murdered. It just keeps getting ratcheted up. And Tolstoy then looks at the chaos and the destruction that has taken place as a result of one wrong being passed on to others, and he says, all it would have taken to stop the pattern of destruction would have been for one person along that line, one person in that long line of people wronging people to absorb the wrong and hold on to it instead of passing it along. Just keep it and own it and feel it. And yes, that's a sacrifice, but that's how that pattern gets stopped. Somebody needs to step in and absorb it. That is true, and it is also very hard. And the reason it's hard is because it doesn't seem fair. And not just that it doesn't seem fair, it's not fair. But that's our Christian calling, to absorb wrong and respond with love instead of lashing back with wrong for wrong. That is what Jesus said. Remember, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, that seems like an impossibly high standard, right? Has anyone actually ever lived that out? Well, the man who said those things, he lived it out. In fact, these were his words as he was being tortured to death, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's our model for how we're supposed to interact with one another, not repaying wrong for wrong, but responding with love for wrong. Ebenezer, God has called us to live at peace with each other. That is a binding command from God to us, live at peace with each other. And he has given us guidelines to help us with this. We're supposed to interact with our leaders with a tone of respect and love. Not speaking unkindly or disrespectfully in our words when we're speaking about them, or in our words or writing when we're speaking to them. And we're supposed to interact with each other by warning the idle and disruptive, encouraging the disheartened, helping the weak, and being patient with everyone. And never repaying wrong for wrong. Never. But always striving to do what is good for each other and for everyone. If we do those things... Here's a, here's a spoiler, here's a preview. If we do those things, we still won't agree on some very important issues. We won't. But we will experience unity and we will experience peace with one another. Let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you that you never have and never will give up on the church. That's really good news to sinners such as us. Thank you that you are with us and that you are for us. Thank you for Ebenezer and thank you for all of the wonderful things that are happening here. That is all glory to you, not to us, and we return thanks and praise to you for the ways that you're at work through the various ministries and people at Ebenezer. We just pray and ask that you would protect our church, that you would preserve our church. If there are areas of relational fellowship where there are small cracks or chips, then we simply ask that you, the King of the church, would heal those wounds, that you would bring healing to those places because we want to be unified, Lord. And we want to live at peace with one another. And we want to be all that you have called us to be. And we want our witness to the community to be one of love and respect and joy and fellowship. And so I pray that you would help us to live that out. In Christ's name, amen.